Hello, 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 children. I am Count Olaf, your new guardian. Do you know what this is? It looks like a list. Wrong! It's a list. A list of chores. This is Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. It's on Netflix and based on the children's novels of the same name. We are setting out on a very top-secret expedition. What do you say, Baudelaire? Are you in? This dark children's book series tells the story of orphaned kids who are subjected to one unfortunate event after another. And that raises the question, are there stories that are too dark for children? I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, gothic literature for kids. Later in the show, training teachers to reach difficult students without the yelling. You know, so you can have high expectations and you can have uh, structure and you can uh, want children to do their best. And when they're not, you can be disappointed in them and you can tell them that. But you can also do that in a way that's respectful. But first, Rhonda Brock Surveys is a professor of English at Longwood University and a children's literature expert, especially gothic literature for children. She says creepy tales for kids are more popular than ever. Yes, horror is actually kind of on the outs. Gothic is more the word of the day for scary stuff for kids. Um, You can identify them by a series of things, mostly children being unprotected in the world would be the key thing. But other elements like ghosts or empty houses or the presence of the past that has to be resolved before the child can go forward into the future. Are you only talking about teenage literature? Absolutely not. Uh, This stuff materializes for very, very young children, early reader stuff, second, third grade. Name a few really popular ones that most of us might recognize. Probably one of the most popular ones is Coraline by Neil Gaiman, but the series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. The books actually open with the death of the parents and these three young people being thrown out into the world, and it is a world that doesn't care about them. And I think that lack of uh, protection, that lack of place, is a real identifying factor in children's Gothic. I don't know Coraline. Tell me about that. Well, Neil Gaiman is an enormously popular dark fantasy author who writes for all ages. Uh, But in Coraline... She discovers sort of an Alice in Wonderland type looking glass world that is ruled over by a person called the Other Mother, who is exactly like her mother, only perfect. She makes all the food Coraline wants. She's going to let Coraline stay up however late she wants. The scary thing is that she has black buttons for eyes. She doesn't have actual eyes. And she says to Coraline, if you come and live with me and let me love you and you love me, if you let me sew these buttons on your eyes... We get to You get to have whatever you want forever. What you find out is that this other mother has done this to children previously, and she eventually loses interest in them. And there's a, a very important line where Coraline actually says, you don't understand. I don't want what I want. If I got everything I wanted, then that wouldn't be life. Huh. Is this the same age that, let's say, Goosebumps appealed to at a certain point? Mm-hmm. Is Goosebumps part of this genre? I would say so, yeah. There's been a resurgence of that kind of thing. And, you know, as far as teen books, of course, there's a a ton of scary books for teenagers out there. Do you think the genre is more popular now for academics, but not so much for the children themselves? Or Actually, my suspicion is that it's actually more popular with child readers, and I think that's because we're in a very frightening cultural moment. This sort of permanent fear of somebody releasing a virus or another terrorist attack or Iran dropping a bomb on us. And even though I think culturally we want to protect children, the truth of the matter is children exist in the same world as adults exist in and have some knowledge of what's going on, even if they don't understand it. Part of what scary literature can do, whether an adult or a child, is give you a scare that you can master to help build the psychological capacity to deal with fright. I mean, when you're reading a scary book or watching a scary film, it's a very controlled thing. If it's too scary, I can put the book down. I can turn the film off. But you can say to yourself, I did this. And like with Goosebumps, there are 
anecdotes from years ago about kids who read the Goosebumps, even though it was scaring them, it was bothering them. But it was sort of a, I can do this, right? I can prove I can do this. <laughs> I can eat hot stuff. Right. Very much. <laughs> yes. Kind of the same thing. How about you? Did you read gothic or horror stories when you were young? Yes. Were there any? I don't know that there were any written specifically for children, but by the time I was 10 or 11, I was reading what my mother read, which was a lot of the late 60s and early 70s first wave horror boom for adults. So she loved horror? She did. (laughs) We watched monster movies every Saturday afternoon. It was great. I loved old fairy tales. I loved that. Name some of those. My mom had this great book of Russian fairy tales, and those feature a witch character named Baba Yaga, who's this cannibalistic witch who has a hut on chicken feet, much like the sea witch in The Little Mermaid. You know, girls would go to her and say, I need help. And she'd say, "Okay, fine, do this thing first. So there were always chances for characters to prove themselves. Why weren't these just too scary for you? Why did you love horror other than you'd been sort of weaned on it by your mother? I had kind of a chaotic and frightening childhood. I didn't understand what was going on in the world or I didn't know what to expect. And part of what horror teaches you is you are capable of dealing with that, with the unexpected. Uh, G.K. Chesterton has this great quote where he says, fairy tales are not important because they tell us there are dragons. Fairy tales are important because they tell us dragons can be slain. Right. It's so interesting because I would have thought you would have craved safe and secure stories of safe and secure children in their beds with attentive, stable families. Well, and, you know, the thing is, I think we have a tendency to essentialize children, and there are probably children who want that. That was not what I wanted or needed at that age. And so children's gothic is not going to be for every child. There are going to be children who are genuinely frightened, and then there are going to be other children who are quite gleeful. (laughs) So what do you think is the history of gothic or horror stories I first was made aware of it through Goosebumps for children's literature and Stephen King for adults, Mm -hmm. but it goes back much, much farther. The original sort of scary story outside of things like folk stories and ghost stories, which have been with us probably as long as we've been able to speak, actually happened as part of the uh, counter-enlightenment. It was a movement to say basically, no, no. Reason and intellect are not everything. We have emotions and we need to explore these emotions. In 1764, a man named Horace Walpole published a book called The Castle of Otranto, semicolon, a gothic story. And he was intentionally being reactionary and trying to write something outrageous and over the top and full of emotion and rejecting the idea of the primacy of the intellect and reason. Isn't that fascinating that back then there were these sort of types that wanted a Game of Thrones kind of uh, rampaging creativity? Absolutely. Uh, The Castle of Otranto opens within the first paragraph with a giant helmet falling out of the sky and crushing a young man on the way to his wedding. (laughs) And when I teach it in classes, I always say, where do we go from there? And what sort of evolved in the horror or gothic genre after the 1700s? That over-the-topness kind of disappears. You get things like domestic dramas, like Jane Eyre is a very famous example. When Jane Eyre is actually very gothic, if you think about it, you have the mad woman locked away in the attic Later on, you get what is sometimes called colonial gothic. And so you end up with like Joseph Conrad writing Heart of Darkness, which is a great example of that. So how do we get from the delicious pleasure that adults may find in reading horror fiction to feeding horror stories to our children? Do we do this with very, very young children? Well, a lot of fairy tales have scary elements to it. I mean, think about poor Snow White, whose stepmother wants to eat her heart. I mean, that's a pretty clear horror element, and those are given to very young children. Um, The Little Mermaid, right? The young girl who has her tongue cut out and makes all these painful sacrifices in, in order to get what she wants. Another really great writer that uses gothic elements is Rule Dahl. He's a classic writer everybody knows. James and the Giant Peach or Matilda or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Those are probably the big ones that everybody knows. Witches. Witches is 
that is a world where children are not protected. It is the child's responsibility to figure out what's going on and find a way to protect himself. Do you feel like a lot of children grow up with that same sort of feeling of chaos and insecurity that you endured and therefore feel like we're told the world is a safe place, but it's not my lived experience? Absolutely. And even if you don't have kind of the extreme version of chaos and security I did as a child, just being a child, I think, is to some degree chaos and insecurity. If, if for no other reason, then you're always under somebody else's control, even if that somebody else loves you. Eat your green beans. Go to bed. Do this. Do that. No matter how much your parents love you, you are under their command. You are smaller. You are weaker. So in these scary books, sort of acknowledging, yes, you know, life can be difficult. Yes, it can seem like people are out to get you. And to provide that sort of reassurance that, yes, you'll get through it. You'll learn to deal with this. Since adults are writing these books, do you think that their understanding of the threat the world poses has changed over the decades? It seems to me in the most recent boom of children's gothic, the threat is, for lack of a better word, higher. The The children are thrown back on their own devices more. And some of the more recent books lack, I won't say lack reassurance, but things don't get completely put to rights the way they might have been 20 or 30 years ago, happily ever after that checked out years ago. But, I mean, these books say there is an ever after, right? Maybe it's not a happily ever after, but there is an ever after in which you have some control and some agency and made some friends and your life's going to go on. Rhonda Brock Servais is a professor of English at Longwood University. Coming up next, how bringing monsters into the classroom can help kids learn. With the Monster Project, students who don't know each other work together to build a monster. It starts when classes from all over the world swap drawings they make of monster parts. Then the students in each class bring that monster to life. So a group in Australia might have a monster whose eyes were designed in South Africa, hands that were drawn in Germany, and horns that come from Russia. Once the monster sculptures are finished, all of the classrooms vote on their favorite. Terry Smith, an education professor from Radford University, heads up the project. The latest monster was a monster named Bobby Wasabi. <laughs> and he comes from a third grade class in Haddonfield, New Jersey. I heard another name. Um, there was one created by a class not so long ago called Hogzilla Chuck Norris Duck Ape. <laughs> and that was the year before. That was really a great monster. That monster came from uh, the Miriam School in St. Louis. The Miriam School is a great example because this is a total special needs school. The entire school is. What I really like is the fact that everybody gets to participate in the classroom. We're not separating people out by ability, saying, well, you can't do this and you can't. You know, you just have to design, cut, tape. I can see why making monsters is universally fun for this age child in the classroom. How is it schoolwork? There is all this education going on as far as following directions, reading, writing, planning. Uh, there's math in there. There's science in there, all different things like that. We, we actually have a theme to each time we build a monster. You know, this last monster, as a matter of fact, our theme was uh, STEM. What would your monster do using STEM to make the world a better place? And so everybody operated on that theme as they're building their, their individual monsters. So the monsters came out with light bulbs, swinging arms, claws, rollers. Uh, some of them had electronic power packs on them, different things like that. But even if we don't do that, the geography part to me is probably the, the biggest part of the whole thing. The children become attached to where the parts come from. The teacher uses his or her own creativity now to build on that and create lessons about other parts of the world and to point out where these parts came from. When they look at, say, I have the hands, the hands came from Little Rock, Arkansas. Where is Little Rock, Arkansas? Or the hands came from Brooklyn, New York. Where is that? And so students now, they have a social connection reason for knowing where that place is now. That's part of what they've just learned, what they've just done. 
I loved seeing the boys from Pakistan who made a little video themselves and said, Hello, Monster Project, here we are from Pakistan. And they introduced themselves and talked about what they were making. And then the next video had three youngsters from an American school saying... Those are my students. They were your students. Mm -hmm. Who were they? They were my fourth grade students from when I was teaching in Hannibal, Missouri, fourth grade. That was so great because here you had happy, carefree youngsters saying howdy to each other between Pakistan and Missouri. That's right. That's right. It's kids wanting to know how they live in different places. We talk a lot in the classroom about this. We talk about the idea of we're way more alike than we are different. And it may not appear that way when we hear the grown-ups talk about it, about how different we are and the problems we're having. But the kids see how similar we all are. You brought with you some of the video that was recorded in these classrooms. You recorded some, but you also had some sent to you. Yes. uh, This one is one that comes from um, KwaZulu-Natal, a school of about uh, 45 students, uh, mostly boys, uh, one principal, and one main teacher. And the sound file we have here is from a little boy named Sizwe. Hello, this is Sizum Kwanaz. Our monster is finished. We are now busy painting. We don't have the orange or red color. But the principal is out of the off school to buy us more paint more paint by next week spazi will be done sorry about the delay on our side thank you i'm so struck by his english abilities mm-hmm. his delightful accent his adorable sensibilities, you know, so sorry for the delay. <laughs> I know, I, I felt the same thing. So they're out of orange and red paint. The principal has left the building to go into town to get the paint so they can come back and finish Spazzy. Because every monster has a name. This monster is Spazzy. <laughs> and of course, he's very polite. I, I noticed that also. Something as simple as this earnest young man describing his monster teaches us so much. Well, you can imagine what my, how the students in my class responded. They have all the opportunities to hear these other people speaking, these other kids, and they're, they're just amazed to hear, especially the, the accent, the way they speak. And then once, once a teacher brings out the fact that, you know, guess what? That's not their native language. That's not his native language. He speaks two or more languages. How many do you speak? We actually did learn a lot of Chinese with some of our Taiwanese partners, and so the kids were exchanging Mandarin Chinese and learning to speak it and making voice files the same way. You also brought a couple of clips from interviews you did with some of the students in your classrooms. Can you share those with me? Absolutely. I'm doing the teeth and I'm doing the tongue. Where is all this stuff? Here's my tongue. Here's the mouth. How are you going to make it work together? We're going to glue these down and then we're going to put the tongue. What if they don't fit? What are you going to do then? Uh, Make a new mouth. Make a bigger mouth. Does the tongue fit in there? Yeah. Show me how. Well, we're going to put the tongue this way. And I'll just take it over here. Maybe. Maybe. Or we might hang it, hang it like this. And we might put tonsils in the back. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and the, the thing is, we only described one of those parts in our class, just one. And so all of those descriptions came from other schools and other kids. Yeah. So each class gets to describe just one part. If a teacher is interested in this and would love to participate with his or her classroom, what do they do? Uh, all they have to do is send me an email. Really? You know, and, and, the, and I'll tell them all about it. You can do as little as you want or as much as you want. This is really great. Terry Smith, thank you. You're welcome. Terry Smith, a professor of education at Radford University, who is heading up the Monster Project. Coming up next, when yelling doesn't stop kids from misbehaving. Every classroom has what teachers might call a problem child. My next guest says those children are often mishandled. 
Kevin Sutherland is a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University's School of Education. His program, called Best in Class, trains teachers to stop bad behaviors in children before they begin. Kevin, have you seen that viral video where the teacher at a success academy in New York was harshly disciplining a first grader for having trouble figuring out a math problem? Go to the calm down chair and sit. There's nothing that infuriates me more than when you don't do what's on your paper. Somebody come up and show me how she should have counted to get her answer that was one in a split. Show my friends and teach them. One, Thank you. Do not go back to your seat and show me one thing and then don't do it here. You're confusing everybody. Very upset and very disappointed. That was a little first grader in a uniform who was having trouble figuring out the math problem. Right. And I think the, the, the problem with situations like that is that children, um, they carry forward those experiences in school and with teachers into the future. And how, how does it uh, impact their interactions, not only with that teacher, but with other teachers? And, ha- and how do they feel about school as a result of that? Is there a tendency for educators to think these inner city kids who grow up under tougher circumstances, need to have more discipline imposed on them? Um, I'm sure that some some teachers might feel that way. Teachers and schools are under a lot of pressure to uh, show academic progress. I think that pressure may manifest itself in teachers feeling stressed to the point of, of snapping with children, and I think that may be some of what you saw there. However, this particular teacher we were talking about is considered their model teacher. Mm -hmm. She gets great results. Can we not admit that sometimes this kind of harsh discipline, high expectations, can yield high test scores? Uh, I don't know that there's a correlation there or an association. I really don't. And if I think back to my favorite teacher in elementary school, Miss Anderson, who was wonderful, but she, uh, we were scared to death of her going into uh, third grade because she had this reputation of being really mean and really strict. And she had really high expectations for us. She was no nonsense. But once we figured out what she wanted, uh, she was wonderful. You know, so you can have high expectations and you can have uh, structure and you can uh, want children to do their best. And when they're not, you can be disappointed in them and you can tell them that. But you can also do that in a way that's respectful. You had an experience right out of college with one of your first jobs where you worked at a school for children who had behavior disorders Mm -hmm. and experienced this sort of do I yell or don't I yell yourself. Yeah, I was starting out. I was a young, uh, early 20s and didn't really know what I was doing, was working with some folks that had been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. Those individuals had these strong relationships with these kids. They were father figures, mother figures, grandmother figures. For me coming in, trying to emulate some of these folks, uh, it didn't work because I was young. I was I was white. Uh, most of the folks I worked with were African American, and uh, I wasn't a yeller. And it's just, and anybody that knows me knows that's not my persona. Did you try yelling? Oh, I did, and it didn't work. It crashed and burned. I mean, the kids looked at me like I was an idiot. Fortunately for me, I was reflective enough to figure that out pretty quickly. And it probably, you know, how they say we learn from failure. It probably helped you get to where you are now with the program. Sure, to some degree. If I can, there's there's an, another story that when I was teaching in an elementary school. Uh, in a self-contained classroom for students that uh, had significant behavior problems. Uh, I had a little girl, and she was really struggling. She was in foster care. She would have these these incredible tantrums. And so I had the bright idea that I was going to audio tape her during one of these tantrums. She was like 11 years old. And play it back to her later so she could hear how she sounded. And I did that. Uh, but before, fortunately, before I played it back for her, I listened to the audio tape. And what I heard was mortifying because I heard myself. I continued to put demands on her as she you know, became more and more upset, as opposed to backing off and to being more thoughtful about how I responded, because I was taking her aggression and misbehavior and oppositional behavior as an affront to me. So therefore, I 
didn't attack her, but I continued to put demands on her at a point in time when she was not emotionally ready to respond to those demands. And I learned a great deal from that. Of course, I didn't play the tape for her, but it helped me understand better how to respond when kids are oppositional or noncompliant. So what is it that you're doing now with this teacher training program to help them cope with small children who have these emotional outbursts and can't control themselves. Mm-hmm. So a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Uh, Maureen Conroy uh, at the University of Florida, we developed a program called Best in Class. And Best in Class really focuses on the two or so children per classroom that really struggle behaviorally. And we coach the teachers uh, in their classrooms to try to improve teacher-child interactions. For example, uh, imagine a young child that... Um, has trouble keeping their hands to themselves. They're, they're pushing, they're shoving on the way to the water fountain every day. And so what typically happens is rather than saying something, the teacher will wait for the problem and then she'll uh, yell at the kid or reprimand him and say, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. Versus anticipating when the problem is going to occur as they're getting ready to go to the water fountain saying, you know, James, I really want you to keep your hands to yourself today. That'd be great. And then as he's walking down the hall, she sees him and she says, you know, you're doing a really nice job keeping your hands to yourself, James. Let's keep that up. Okay, great job. So she's anticipating when problems occur because a lot of these little problems escalate into big problems. And that's what we're trying to prevent. What age group is best in class reaching now? Uh, we're in preschool, three to four years old. We focus on things like structured rules, um, giving kids opportunities to perform the behaviors you want them to see rather than assuming that they know how to do it. So we uh, give them training on telling the child what they did well and why you like that. We have trained coaches that go into classrooms and work with teachers each week and give them feedback on their implementation or their practices with these young children in the classroom. Why aren't the teachers doing this already? Why don't they already have that training from their schools of education? I think that uh, we do need to provide more training in classroom management. I think that's, that's absolutely an issue. I will also say as a former teacher, and when you're in a classroom with 15, 20, 25 kids, you're doing your best to meet the needs of everyone. And you don't always recognize that this one child, all your responses to that child are reactive. Because you have 15, 16, 18 other children in the classroom that you're working with. So the coaches provide another set of eyes in the classroom and can help the teachers see what they're doing and maybe what they could do a little bit better. I know there are many early intervention programs Mm -hmm. for children who have these control issues. Mm -hmm. How is yours unique? Our program is not a pull-out program, so we don't pull children out of the classroom. Um, We work with the teachers, and so we feel like by working with the teachers, not only can we help the children that are the focus of intervention this year, but the teachers can use these learned skills and practices next year and the following year. So we see it as more of uh, a way to uh, help teachers sustain some of these practices and uh, benefit larger numbers of kids. Kevin Sutherland, this has been wonderful. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Appreciate it. Kevin Sutherland is a professor of education at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Education. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. The following is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. In a lab at the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia, they're using videos to spot the essential characteristics of an excellent teacher With Good Reason producer Allison Quantz paid a visit to the lab to see what they're uncovering. Okay, let's look at that. Let's look at this one here. Bob Pianta presses play on the screen in front of us. This is our new... And a preschool class starts up. Okay, so one of the things we're seeing here in this video is the teachers um, doing a nice job of drawing the kids together in a conversation. Pianta is the founder and director of the Center for Advanced Study of Teaching and Learning at the University of Virginia. And he believes he can see the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher. Okay, she just did a really nice job of connecting with a little kid, a little Carson over here, asking him what he didn't do when he was at school. She quieted her voice when she responded back to him because his voice was quiet. She kind of mirrored you know, his vocal tone. And then at the same time, while she's talking to Carson, the little girl right next to her leans over and she high-fives the little girl. So this is... this is These the, small this things, quieting her voice, high-fiving the other student, 
This is how we can tell the woman in the video is a good teacher. This is the way a really effective teacher can orchestrate three or four things all at once. Now all it takes moving. is observing a classroom for just four 15-minute sessions. What makes a good teacher? So um, we pay attention to three broad areas of their behavior. One, uh, the emotional, emotional support, support they provide kids. Which means several um, things. The ways they respond sensitively to different kids' needs in the classroom, the way they convey to the kids an understanding that the teacher understands where the kids are coming from. Two, classroom, classroom organization. organization. And within that area, we look at features of the teacher's management of the kids' behavior. The way they manage time, is this a fairly productive classroom? And the way they manage a lesson. And three, instructional support. And that really gets at the qualities of teachers' feedback for kids' learning, the richness of their language with kids, um, and the way that they press kids' thinking and conceptual understanding of the material. He's created a system that breaks down these three categories and allows an observer to rate the teacher on a scale of one to seven. Pianta says he can train anyone to use the rating system. So we're going to look um, now at a lesson in a high school classroom. According to Pianta, uh, this high school teacher does just about everything so, right. So right now all the kids are working The kids on, are working uh, together to define groups. intelligence. She's allowing plenty of conversation among the kids. The teacher is um, circulating around the room, exactly, stopping to exactly, question each sure. group. So she's lingering here for quite a while. She's asking them more questions. She's pushing them a little bit. She says, I want you to explain this a little bit more. I want to know why. So, so that's, a, that's creating a press on these kids' performance and their thinking about this big concept of intelligence. I didn't understand what was so special about this teacher until I saw the next classroom. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you one now that is it's a social studies history class on the presidency. The difference was striking. These kids were sitting quietly at their desks, but okay. you could tell so they just weren't thinking very hard. Here, here's what's happening here. So you got the teacher at the front of the room, kind of mostly talking to the kids. The teacher just asked the kids, can you read the definition of? The students were really just reading out loud from their textbook or from a PowerPoint. So, so there's not much being produced by the kids in this particular lesson. What's the flow here the, of information? The flow is from the teacher out. <laughs> now, this young not, social studies teacher was doing a pretty good job. Kids. The students were well-behaved, and they gave her correct answers. But in the world of teaching, there's a big difference between pretty good and excellent. If you look at kids who move through schools, it's the teachers whose classrooms they land in uh, that matter the most. And that is particularly important for kids who may be vulnerable for one reason or another. So how does all this help? What does it matter that we can separate the good from the bad? To answer that, I want to play the last thing Pianta said about that young social studies teacher. The teacher that we're watching here around the American presidency, she's going to be a terrific teacher. She's going to be a terrific teacher. And that is perhaps the most important idea to get out of Pianta's study. A bad teacher doesn't have to stay a bad teacher. Pianta firmly believes that his observation system isn't just about evaluating, it's about improving. You know, we have a little bit of a one-size-fits-all model of teacher preparation and support, whether it's in higher ed or whether it's out in the field. But with the system, you can identify the gaps in a teacher's skills. This is a teacher who needs help on the emotional side of things. That's a teacher who needs more training in classroom organization. If we can understand that a little bit better, then we can do a much better job of tailoring the supports that they need to be successful in the classroom. And I really think that that holds a tremendous amount of promise for us. What surprised Pianta most is that almost without fail, teachers are ready for something like this. Whether they've been in the classroom for 20 years or two months, they're hungry for the chance to improve. For With Good Reason, I'm Allison Quance. Robert Pianta is Dean of the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia. This piece was produced with help from Lena Richards. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County has gained a reputation for strong teachers, especially in the STEM fields. When Freeman Habrowski became president there in 1992, his mission was to make it cool to be smart, and he's been wildly successful. 
Among many other things, he doesn't have a football team. Instead, he has a national champion chess team that gets lauded the way most champion football teams do. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County, produces more African-American PhDs in science and engineering than just about any other university in the country. Named by Time magazine as one of the 10 best college presidents, Freeman Obrowski is leading a revolution in STEM education. Let me get a feeling for what the baseline was at University of Maryland, Baltimore County when you first arrived. You came as provost. Was it a school on the rise? The institution was very young. It was only 20 years old. It was uh, working to become a research campus. It was attracting very, very strong faculty across disciplines. And it was being very successful, I would say, in the social sciences and humanities. We sent a lot of young students of all races to law school, for example, and to policy graduate programs. However, it turns out that students were not succeeding in science, white or black. Um, Keep in mind that the institution had been formed, the charter was actually 1963. And so... UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, became the first institution in our state formed at a time when students of all races could come here. Every other institution had been formed either for blacks or whites, but here from the beginning students of all races could attend. It was predominantly white, and it still is, uh, but about 15 percent of our students are African-American today, and about 20% are of Asian descent, and perhaps 3-4% Hispanic. What did you want to do when you became president? I had already been working on the issue of increasing the number of minorities succeeding succeeding here in science, particularly African-Americans. I was aware that only 2% of the PhDs in the country Um, in science and engineering were awarded to African-Americans. And my colleagues here were amazing in being willing to experiment, to figure out what could we do to become a leader in that area. Well, it worked so well that by the time I was president, we had begun to send more students of all races on to graduate and professional schools in science and engineering, not just those at the very top. Is the success primarily because you all are highly skilled at recruiting top-notch scholars to join the ranks of other top-notch scholars? I think that's a part of it, but I think most important, elected officials in Maryland really get it. They understand that the future of this state is closely connected to the quality of both K-12 through and higher education, and that investing in these colleges and universities will mean producing increasingly large numbers of well-prepared leaders. And so you start there with that context. And then this is a campus that takes great pride in the role of faculty on campus and staff and students. And so we've all been focused on academic innovation. For four years in a row, U.S. News has named us the most academically innovative. This is this top up-and-coming university. We have been redesigning courses from chemistry to digital humanities and the writing, the first-year writing course. So it's an exciting place, you're right, because of the brain power, but also because of the attitude of people. I think because of when we were founded, a time of hope in the 60s, I honestly think that there's a culture here of saying we're good, but we can be much better. We're not, we're not willing to say we've arrived. We, I always say anytime an institution believes it's arrived, it is beginning to go the other way. But you're not a place that takes mediocre students who are a little bit tentative academically and churns them into academic powerhouses, right? No, you know, I I make no no apologies about the fact to people that we look for the very best prepared students we can have. Uh, With regard to students who are not as well prepared, we are working on K-12 initiatives from two upward bound programs to strengthening math and science teaching to adopting an elementary and middle school. We're doing a lot of that to help kids come up to a standard, but we do believe some campuses need to be known for students of all races coming up to the standard, being serious about the work. Nothing takes the place of hard work. So these are very, very high-achieving students from their schools. You know, We need to think about public universities attracting high-achieving students. We are making this statement. You don't have to be rich to be brilliant. 
we take pride in knowing that students here are very smart and enjoy being very smart. We need to teach working and middle-class kids, not that it's simply okay to be smart, but that it's great to be smart. Well, what about too large a percentage of the population, and in particular the Mm African-American population, that can't make it on the UMBC campus, where students are languishing, bored in classrooms with no real academic vision? Well, there are two things to be said. We now lead the country in producing African-Americans who go on and get PhDs in science and MD-PhDs. At the same time, though, that we are attracting these well-prepared students, uh, we are working with K-12 through to build the skills of children in schools in this area. But it would be a serious flaw in thinking that because we are a public university, we should be doing remedial education. Uh, When we think about African Americans and minorities, everybody thinks about the remedial problem. Who thinks about the talented 10? But the talented 10 are doing fine. They no, can they're go, not doing fine. They can That's go to Harvard. Wrong. But let me say, they yeah. can go to Harvard, Stanford, oh, that Berkeley. Is, but you're so wrong. You're so wrong when it comes to science. I have to tell you that. You're absolutely wrong. What percent of, of the PhDs in this country do you think in science and engineering go to African Americans? What would you think? 10%. No, it's 2. 2%. It's 2. What percent of the scientists at NIH are black? NIH, the National Institutes of Health, that has all of the most important research involving health disparities in America, where health disparities are a major part of the economic challenge we face. What percent of the scientists do you think are African American? Ten percent. Under one percent. Let me give you a statistic that you'll find interesting. Um, It doesn't surprise people that only 20 percent of blacks and Hispanics who begin with a major in science and engineering will graduate in science and engineering. It shocks people to learn that only 32% of whites who begin with a major in pre-med or science or engineering will graduate in those areas. Now, the first response from many is, well, they weren't as well prepared. Well, we find that often the higher the SATs and more selective the university, the greater the chance the student will leave science within the first year and move over to humanities or social sciences. Even the well-prepared students who begin with an interest in becoming doctors, for example, will tend to get wiped out. They end up not doing well in that first year or two. They get discouraged, and they leave it and go to areas where they can succeed. Okay, so tough luck they wiped out. But here's the problem. This is what you clearly don't understand. (laughs) You clearly don't. Do you know? If I tell you that 11% of the of the bachelors in Europe are in science and engineering. What percent do you think we have in America of 25-year-olds? I don't know. It's 6%. And for Americans of color, it's not quite 2%, 2% at most. There's been a 50% decline in the uh, number of women majoring in computer science in this country of all races. We're talking about a million and a half jobs going unfilled in America if we can't find more people majoring in these disciplines. And so the question of underrepresentation and underproductivity in degrees, uh, those two questions are inextricably linked. Let me ask you something. Mm-hmm. Do you think there just is a limited pool of academic talent and you are the Coach K of STEM education? But it can't be replicated by someone who doesn't have your energy, enthusiasm, oh, and that, charisma. All of that's just not the case. I love the way you make these statements. You keep getting my blood boiling. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think there's a limit on talent. Oh, we have so many. Every math teacher can have an impact on thousands of lives. When we produce a student of any race who's excellent in the mathematics, not okay, but excellent in the mathematics, who knows how to explain concepts in different ways, who understands that children learn in different ways. You've got somebody who can change thousands of lives. So we are doing a lot to make sure there will be more children who can make it. We, we, we have our own school that we've adopted. We're using that school to develop, develop practices that can be used by others in strengthening the teaching and learning process, because that's 
strengthening the teaching and learning process and making sure that children have good role models can make a big difference. Let me ask you this. If mm-hmm. you were not president of UMBC mm-hmm. and you were deposited onto a poor performing campus mm-hmm. of a comparable college, let's say, in a rural southern part of America, mm-hmm. where the tradition has been very poor performance, mm-hmm. what would be the first few things you would do? I want to know what are the attitudes of people. You want faculty and staff who care deeply about the students. You want faculty and staff who will take the time not to be judgmental, but to challenge the students to be their best. We have to know the students well enough to figure out what they need in order to succeed. What is it that gets students to become excited? Course redesign can help in any situation. Having students simply sit and be lectured to for an hour is not going to get most people really engaged. We have to empower students by flipping classes and by looking at ways of shortening the part that's lecture and getting them more involved in solving problems or doing the actual writing or involved in research and showing them how the work connects to the real world. They need to see how whatever skills they are developing will be used in some particular job, whether it's their writing skills or their thinking skills. Very important. Dr. Rabelski, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. You've been a great interviewer. You got my blood boiling in the best possible way. Wonderful. Come visit UMBC, please. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Freeman Obrowski is the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Many of the best teachers are beginning to understand that one surprising barrier to teaching young children math or science is language. This is the focus of research by Ann Charity Hudley. She's a professor of linguistics at UC Santa Barbara. She's looking into how very small language differences between teachers and students in the classroom can build up over the years and contribute to the achievement gap that keeps too many students from ever reaching their potential. How did you become interested in studying STEM and language? So my father is an obstetrician gynecologist and my mom was a pediatrician. My father really believed that because they had Southern accents and they had African-American Southern accents, that going into STEM areas would be easier for them than perhaps going into English or kind of more subjective subjects. What he said to me was that he did not want to give up speaking the way that his mother spoke, people in his community. In a class like math or science, why would language matter? What kinds of differences are we talking about if everybody's speaking English? So, for example, if a student is trying to read a word problem or a scientific lab report, if they have differences in the way they pronounce words, it's going to be sometimes a delay in how they map what they're reading onto the way that they speak. So, for example, many African-American students may use the phrase it is or it's, where other speakers may use there are or there is. And many word problems start off with this concept of there are five pigs in a blanket. So that the concepts the students have, they know that something is there, there exists. But they're trying to figure out, is there a meaning difference here between it's, there are, right? One feature that we know is challenging for students is S. That's S that makes a plural, as in the word eggs. So if you have a word problem that says a student went to the store and they're buying five eggs and two loaves of bread, Students who don't use the S when they're speaking as frequently may have a hard time recognizing that there's a plural issue with that S and get really confused on that word problem. Is that a major problem or is that a very minor problem with only a few children? What we're seeing is that the teachers do see this as a major, major issue. And it's not just because of the small nuances of the word problem. It's how these differences build up over time such that students don't feel like they want to do math or science at all. One teacher reported on a situation that she watched between a teacher and a student in a math class. 
And this is, again, this is a first grade student. And the students were doing math using dice in the classroom. One little boy, an African-American boy, raised his hand and he said to the teacher, ma'am, I ain't got no dice. The teacher looked at the boy and responded, in this classroom, we speak English really harshly. And the teacher was observing, who was really thinking, gosh, there's got to be a better way to do this. Those type of situations, what we're finding is that they can discourage the student from not just speaking in class, but really from being eager to participate in math at all. Truthfully, if I were the little child, that would crush me. Yes. And that's what we're looking at, that sometimes these things seem very small, but to the students, these issues are huge. If a student is already feeling like they don't belong, we have to start thinking about the power of some of the things that we've said to general students, majority students, Caucasian students, where there is no kind of ramification, but there may be specific nuances between that white teacher, that white professor saying it to the African-American student. So another, a math teacher that we've worked with, you know, he really thought about this because he did have this attitude, oh, these are really small things, right? And he realized that in his classes, a lot of times he was using the word um, error or mistake when a kid said something using African-American varieties or language. He decided this year that he wasn't going to use mistake or error. He was just going to talk about a student's home or cultural language versus their school language, the language of his classroom. And he said just that small difference. He could see the student's attitudes change, not just towards him, but towards coming in that classroom and thinking about themselves as mathematicians. Anne Charity Hudley is a professor of linguistics at UC Santa Barbara. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.